Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Drew. The rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 31. We'll really be focusing on verse 31, but we'll get a little running start by looking at verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, verses 28 through 31. We are almost at the end of our long journey in Romans chapter 8, and about halfway done with the letter to the church in Rome in its entirety. In the spring, we'll be in Romans 9 through 11, and then in the fall, we'll, we'll be in Romans 12 for the whole fall, and then we will wrap up in the spring of 2024 in Romans 13 through 16. So if you're wondering, man, what should I be reading in my Bible for the next couple of years? Well, you can just keep reading Romans um, over and over again, and trust me, I think that you'll find much fruitfulness there. Uh, while you're finding Romans 8, uh, maybe let me just ask a question real quick. Who remembers uh, the painful part of recess where you would line up to pick teams? Does anybody remember this? Just a few of you. Maybe it wasn't so painful for you. It was painful for me. Um, when you would line up to pick teams out at recess or on the playground, you're looking across the lines. And if you're the team captain, which is really what you want to be, you're trying to pick the best team. How do I pick a team that can win this game? And being the team captain was ideal because if you were, you were just not caught up in the line hoping that your name would get called. But when you got to pick your team, you're looking for the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, the tallest, the smartest in the line. You're trying to guarantee a victory. And I remember my fifth grade year, there was a friend of ours who had hit a growth spurt at 10 years old that was just unbelievable. And having him on your team was like having a cheat code. He was the number one pick every single time. So if you were a team captain, whenever I was growing up at this school, you were always looking for this guy. He was your first pick, and it was very unlikely that the team that did not have him would win. That was how dominant he was. And I think that he went undefeated that year uh, in all of our pickup games of anything that we would do. Now, eventually, a lot of us caught up to him. The scales were balanced. But in our verse today, in Romans 8.31, we discover that the Christian, when they enter into salvation by grace through faith in Christ, they are placed on a team where the captain has no equal. They are placed on a team where there will be no legitimate rival. There will be no team, no matter how strong they may be, that would be able to defeat this other team, and that is because of the captain of that team. And this captain will never leave us, never abandon us. Romans 8.31 has us asking the question, what does it mean that God is for us? That God is for us. So let me read Romans 8, verse 28 through 31. Afterwards, I'll say this is the word of the Lord you're invited to respond with thanks be to God. So let me read Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now before we can turn our attention to verse 31, I want us to take a look at verses 28 through 30. 
It begins with something that is really a beautiful, beautiful verse. It, you, you, I, I find it on fancy prints in people's homes. I've seen it on paintings. You see it on coffee mugs, on throw pillows. Is that the right word, throw pillows, decorative pillows? Did I get that right? Okay, perfect. Thank you, babe. Um, so, you know, uh, this verse is a verse that we often see just kind of thrown around. It's verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now this is an incredible promise. It really is. That everything is going to work for good for those who love God. Now when we read this, it is an encouragement to us. But it can be easy for us to miss that the following verses are really the grounds of that assurance. The verses that come after this are really the grounds of that assurance. Why is it true that for those who love God, all things work together for good? For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, verses 29 through 30 give us a picture of it. And there are four things we see here. And I can't spend a lot of time here. I wish I could. We're actually going to come back to some of this when we get to Romans 9 through 11 in the spring. But I do want to just point out, Four things here real quickly, and I'm going to tie them to the words you find here. In verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined. Now, there is a lot here in these verses. But the one word that I want you to think about when you think about the truth of verse 29, the first part of it, is that God has counted his people before the foundation of the world. Now, that does not mean that God set aside some time with a calculator. He wasn't looking at a Google sheet. It wasn't as if God was numbering his people. This idea of foreknew and predestined is the idea of that before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon his people. It wasn't as if God was looking at a massive cosmic data sheet and he was crunching the numbers on who would make it into the kingdom. That is not what the Bible means when it's talking about foreknew or predestined or election. What it's talking about is that before the foundation of the world, God set apart for himself a people. And upon that people, God has bestowed his love upon them. Now for this people that God has counted, there is something that happens in real time in the life and history of the world and in our life and history. Because while God counting us happens before the foundation of the world, God calling us happens within the course of our life. And that's where verse 29 goes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, those whom he counted, he also called. Called. What is this call? This is the call of salvation. This is where God awakens our cold, dead heart to the good news of the gospel and we receive it by grace through faith in Christ. This call is what theologians will call the effectual call, meaning that God seizes his people. He grabs them. He brings them into faith even if they are not at present faithful to God. So God counts us, God calls us, but look at what it says next. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he called, he also justified. You see, God counts us, God calls us, and then God claims us. He pronounces a declaration of righteous over his people. In Romans 5, we spent 
basically a whole semester there exploring it. And Romans 5 is this linchpin for the doctrine of justification. See, when God claims us, he brings us into Christ Jesus and he puts a new designation over and under our lives. Even though we were born unrighteous, when we are justified by God, we are made and declared righteous. And why is that? How can we be made righteous? Is it because we start behaving the right way? Is it because we start doing good things as opposed to bad things? Is it because we start making wise decisions as opposed to foolish decisions? No, we are claimed righteous because we are rooted in Jesus. And Jesus is the righteous one. Now the last thing here, what's it say? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified. This is us being conformed to God. Us being made to be glorified is being brought into conformity to who God is. That we are not just now declared righteous, but we are made righteous. We are moved from being positionally perfect to being practically perfect in the work of glorification. Now this work is the final work. And it is the work of conformity. And it is in these verses that we see really what is the foundation for verse 28. For those who love God, all things work according to his purpose. Why is this the case? Because God's people belong to God. And God is taking them to a better place. He is doing this through the intervening work of grace in our lives. And it is on this foundation that Paul is going to say something that I really believe he intends to be one of the most radical things he says in the entire letter. I really think verse 31 is put out there as maybe one of the most definitive, startling statements of the entire letter. And we'll miss it if we have forgotten that underneath it, undergirding it, the infrastructure is that salvation, salvation, God's greatest gift to his people, salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. So if we lose verses 28 through 30, when we get to verse 31, it will lose its impact. So on the foundation of this, let's hear it again. Romans 8, 31 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Two things in this verse. You ready? For the note takers, the first one is we need significant help. We need significant help. And the second one, we have a significant helper. Two things in verse 31. We need significant help. You need significant help. I need significant help. And guess what? We have a significant helper. Let's look at verse 31. Paul begins by saying, what then shall we say to these things? Now, what things is Paul talking about here? Right? Just good Bible reading. When you're looking at this in verse 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What are the things Paul is asking about? Certainly. Everything that he has said so far in Romans. What then shall we say to what you have heard so far? Everything. All of these wonderful truths. I think almost certainly he's referring to everything that has come so far in the letter. But I think he is giving particular reference 
to what's happened in the last few verses. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? I think Paul is looking back on the whole of the letter, but specifically verses 28 through 30. And so there's a few things that are good for us to look over at Romans 8 to remind ourselves. It's been a long journey. In Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, we find out that God has brought freedom from condemnation through Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 begins, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 12 through 17, we discover that God doesn't just release us from condemnation. He invites us into the family of faith. God has invited us into his family as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're not just free from condemnation. We're adopted into the very family of God. In verses 18 through 25 of chapter 8, we discover that God is bringing an eternal glory to those who remain faithful through the present and temporary sufferings. And in verses 26 through 30, we discover that the Spirit of God is at work in us and through us on the foundation of the calling of God the Father and the salvation of the Son of God that has claimed us as God's own. Paul has said these things. And what he is saying in verse 31, he begins with this. What then shall we say to these things? It's at, he's asking us, in light of the glorious things you have heard, what should we now conclude? The rest of Romans 8, the next few sermons, are really Paul just looking at everything he has said so far in Romans 8 and saying, in light of this, how should we now live? In light of this, what should we conclude about the love of God and our life with God? Paul's question here is meant to draw our attention back and to very gently ask us, have you been paying attention? Have you been remembering? Have you been keeping track of what God has done? And why is this crucial? Because the first 30 verses of Romans 8 say incredible things. Glorious and gloriously true things. Beautiful things that aren't just beautiful in their prose. They're staggering in their reality. God has done something unbelievable. He's done something amazing. He's done something that defies our sin and shame and Satan and condemnation. The gospel is incredible news. It's unbelievable. We've spent a whole semester in a chapter that will not let us have anything but another deep gospel every time we explore it. And it's there. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, there is liberating, incredible, transformative, redeeming power in Romans 8. There is. And the Spirit of God over the last Few months has been at work in us, taking God's word and making it alive to our hearts. And Paul's asking us, what then shall we say to these things? Romans 8 has been a detailed description that you and I need significant help. Need significant help. We can't free ourselves, but God can. We long for a beloved family and God provides one in Christ. We need hope in the midst of sufferings and sorrows. Hope that only God provides in light of a coming glory. 
We need to be forgiven and acquitted of the guilt and condemnation of sin and shame. And there is only one who can acquit us and forgive us. And that is God and God alone in Christ Jesus. We need significant help. And Romans 8.31 begins with a rhetorical question that draws our attention yet again to two realities. We need significant help and we have a significant helper. Now Paul moves from this first question into another. And while I think the first question is meant to be reflective, the second question is almost certainly meant to be rhetorical. Look at it. Paul has asked, what then shall we say to these things? He's calling our attention to remembrance and reflection. And then he follows it up with this. If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Just just sit on that for a second. If God is for us, if God is for us, If God is for you, if God is for me, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that God is for us? Paul is giving us a prompt for meditating and reflecting on the gospel. If God is for us, do you know what? Everything changes. Everything. Everything changes. Everything is different. If God is for us, we can be forgiven of that which we feel is unforgivable. If God is for us, we will never be abandoned, even when we have been abandoned by those who claim to love us. If God is for us, we can be released from the judgment of death. If God is for us, we can speak to and hear from God. If God is for us, we will never lose to the enemy that seeks to devour us. If God is for us, we can experience freedom from the sin that feels like it has us chained. If God is for us, we can endure suffering and persecution. If God is for us, we can be gracious with those who are not gracious to us because we have received all of grace. If God is for us, everything is different. Everything. And and, and truthfully, if I can just level with you for a second, I, I don't think we've got it. Like, I don't think we've internalized it. I mean, just, just even now in the room right now, it feels like there's some options in front of us. For some of us, this feels like, well, that's maybe too good to be true. For others of us, it may feel like, yeah, that's just kind of a propositional statement. I don't really resonate with it. For others of us, it can feel like, okay, but what does it actually mean? If God is for us, it means that the freedom that you long for can be experienced if you are willing to receive it as a gift from God. If God is for us, everything is different. Every inch of your life must change if you come to believe that God is for you? Do you carry deep, deep anxieties? How does the truth, the reality, that if you are in Christ Jesus, God is for you, how does it change that? If you carry deep wounds and hurts, what does it do to your heart to believe that God is for you? If you feel 
under the mountain of sin and shame. What does it mean to begin to believe that God is for you? Everything that comes after this prompt presumes that if this is true, because some of the most glorious things that are coming in Romans 8 are ahead of us in this text. And every single one of them is met with power and presence, but they presume this reality. Like if you, if you, if you believe that God is still waiting to make his mind up on you, then there will be no freedom in what Paul is going to say after this. It'll sound nice, but you won't, you won't feel it in your soul. If God is for us, if God is for you, then you can enter into living a life completely different than if that wasn't the, wasn't the case. This prompt that Paul has given us here, if God is for us, who can be against us, it assumes something. Do you know what it assumes? It assumes that it's possible for God to not be for a person. If God is for us, who can be against us? This glorious prompt from Paul presumes that for some, God is not for them. Now, before we begin to just develop this us-them idea, we should realize that this is true for all of us by nature. All of us are born into this world at odds with God, every single one of us. Every single person in this room was born into this world in opposition to God. We were born into this world at odds with God. We were born into this world, and God was not for us. We were at enmity with God. We were children of wrath, like Paul will say in Ephesians 2. We were subject to the condemnation of God. That's how we're born into this world, at odds with God. Paul has already told us this in Romans 1 and 2 and 3. Paul has told us over and over and over again that everyone who enters into this world is born in opposition to God. Now the only question is, will you stay that way? Will you remain at enmity with God? Will you remain an enemy of God? Because the thing that keeps us from God is not the limits of God's grace. It's the hardness of our hearts. And it's the limitlessness of our rebellion. If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we move from being born into this world in opposition to God, to being one of whom it can be said, God is for me. How do we do that? Is it church attendance? Is it singing some songs? Is it doing the right things? How do we move from enmity with God to being a part of God's family? Someone for whom God is for. He's on their side. Well, there is one word that can capture it. And that word is grace. Grace. Grace is God's love upon us. That transfers us from a kingdom where God is against us. 
into a kingdom where God is for us. Grace is what we stand in need of. Grace is what Paul has been telling us we desperately need. A grace that provides a righteousness that we desperately lack. This is God's grace. And it is God's grace that moves us from life against God to life with God. And when that happens, maybe not all at once, but bit by bit by bit, our life begins to be transformed by God, by his presence and by his power. And we can live with the kind of boldness that Paul is assuming that we feel in this verse because we focus on the first part of this rhetorical question, but look at the second part. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? There isn't a compelling answer to this question. It's meant to be rhetorical. It's meant for you to hear it and go, nobody, nothing, no one will be able to stand in opposition to God. But we often live as if everyone or everything or anyone or anything might thwart the purposes and power of God, don't we? We often live out of fear, scarcity, anxiety, shame. We live defeated lives. And yet if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can really win against the power of God? And it should leave us asking this, what do I fear? Because the things that we fear are oftentimes the things that our heart believes. Sometimes not even explicitly, but implicitly, are more powerful than God. Our fears are often tied to false beliefs that someone or something is more powerful than God. The source of Christian fear in our lives is most often the felt sense, whether grounded in reality or not, that this thing or this person or this event or this outcome will be more powerful than God. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, truthfully, right? Because I, I think we can hear that and go, well, golly, what a, what a dummy I am. I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel that way. But sometimes it does feel that way, doesn't it? We feel that deeply. We feel like, my goodness, the power of this fear, it seems like it grips us at like a soul Level Like it just captures our mind, it captures our emotions, it captures our relationships and it begins to be the, the, the frame by which we understand who we are and who the world is. We live as if we're constantly waiting for this thing to come true or for this thing to happen or for it to happen again. And some of us have seen grave and dangerous and dark things. Some of us have been right on the line of feeling like the fear will overtake us and drag us to the depths. And in those moments, it is very hard and difficult for our fickle hearts to believe that if God is for us, nothing is going to defeat him. And I think that oftentimes that fear has such power because our hope is rooted in something that is not what God is saying is the most hopeful thing in front of us. 
We fear the outcomes of the present sufferings, but we lose hope of the eternal reward. And, and, and I just, I want to, I'm saying this to me first. And I want you to hear me say that. As someone who deeply struggles with anxiety, I know what it feels like to get fixated on worry and on fear. I know what it's like. I'm with you. And what I need to hear is this. Kyle, your fears are big because your hope is small. My fears are often big because I'm putting my hope in very small, small rewards. And God is promising all of his people there is a big reward. And that reward is the eternal glory that Paul has already told us about. The assurance of hope in God is not that everything is going to work out like we want it to work out. It's that God is bringing a better kingdom. And we might only know present sufferings now, but a kingdom is coming where we will only know forever glory then. And we stand in the tension between these realities. And our fears beset us. They attack us at the corners and fringes and fence posts of our heart. What do you fear? Is it the opinion of your neighbor? Is it the drift of culture? Is it lack? Is it heartache? Is it suffering? Is it death? Is it sickness? Is it powerlessness? Is it the loss of a job? Is it the loss of a friend? Is an unfilled desire, an unmet expectation? What do you fear? For the Christian, in the face of all these fears, trials, and afflictions, we can face them. And why? Because God is for us. He is not going to abandon us. And he is bringing us to a coming day. And this will be a day of glory. And while the trials may last, and they may last for a long time, they may last for a lifetime. There is a day coming when the trials will end. And it is rightly called a day of glory. And God is going to be faithful to his people until that day. And then forever fellowshipping with his people into the future beyond. Now this hope is a hope that is not immediately gratifying, but it is eternally satisfying. God is inviting us to believe that if he is for us, nothing can stand in the way of the best that God is bringing to you. Nothing. Do you know why? Because God is bringing it. It's not in your power. It's not in the world's power. You can't lose it because you couldn't gain it. You wouldn't be able to keep it because it's not yours to keep. God's glorious future is his assurance. And he has guaranteed it. And he is bringing it. And he's going to bring it. And it's not on my timetable. That is a guaranteed fact. Because it would be here today. But it is on his timetable. And it's coming. And in between now and then, God is saying, I am never going to abandon you. I am for you. There are a lot of people in your life that will be on your team. And many of them, Many of them will leave. Some of them will fail. And the ones that stay will stay imperfectly so. But God is a faithful friend to his people. He never abandons us 
He never walks away. He never disappoints us or lets us down. His plans are always put into effect. He never walks away or scorns us. He doesn't mock or belittle our need. He receives it in with grace and power to transform. If God is for you, he is forever for you. He is not a fair weather friend. He is not fickle. And he does not put your love as the condition of his. And that's good news. Trying to live faithful to God without trusting that God is in your corner is an impossible task. It really is. We aren't meant to live the Christian life by our own strength. Let me tell you, the engine of living for God is grounded in the reality of living with God. You want to live a life for God? You have to first learn to live your life with him. Because the other way is just law. And it's powerless to transform. But it is powerful to eviscerate your strength and your endurance. I believe that many Christians are stuck trying to live a life that is faithful for God without cultivating a deep friendship and relationship with God. So how do we do that? How do we begin to cultivate a deep relationship with God? Well, there are many ways, but it will begin here. By meditating on the good news. By remembering that God's invitation into life with him is not primarily about you living a great life for him, but in coming to believe and live from the reality that God is for you in Jesus Christ. It's coming to believe that God operates off of a different economy than you. And that because of grace, God has said, you're mine. You belong to me. And you're welcomed in for good forever. And he will be faithful to his promises even when we are faithless because we are in Christ Jesus, the faithful covenant-keeping son. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that God is for you? Do you really believe it? Do you believe that God is faithful to you even when you're faithless to him? Do you really believe that God's love for you is not conditional on a future version of you? Do you really believe that God is more powerful than the things that you view as the greatest threats to the life that God is inviting you to live? Do you really believe that God has a kingdom that is better than the kingdoms of this world? That's better than anything you could get here apart from him. And he's bringing it to you. Do you believe that? Because if you do, everything is now different. Everything changes. And God is inviting us into this profound journey and adventure on the foundation of his forever faithfulness for him to say, I am for you forever for good in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ. We ask God that you would help us to grapple with the question, do we believe that you are for us? We know that your favor and affection, your love and your grace, God, they are sourced and centered in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so I pray for those here 
maybe for those for whom they have always thought the Christian life is just living spectacularly for God. But they have never really received the foundation of living life with you. I pray that today might be the day of their salvation. That they would move from distance to nearness to you through your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that for those who have trusted you for salvation and yet have forgotten or maybe they've never heard or embraced the power that comes with believing that you are for them. That you do not stand in opposition to them in Christ, but you stand in their stead. You are on their team. You are the captain, God, that is directing their lives towards a glorious and good end. I pray, God, that they would receive that reorientation and redirection in their hearts with humility, with grace, and with faith. And that it might lead to a life of faithfulness, not to earn your love, but to enjoy it and on the foundation of it.